Cristo me estés. It's also a decision. Silence and solitude is a decision because it's an act of trust. It is a decision because I've had you guys do this for the last two Sundays. It is a decision because in this trust envelope, I had you write down, I had you write down things that you carry, things that you are holding, things that you are anxious, concerned about, things that you don't trust God for, things that keep you up at night, things that you're sitting here right now and you're going, I cannot not think about this, things that you've been holding. And solitude and silence is an act of trust because what we're saying is we are literally saying, God, in my inactivity, because I am not doing anything, in my inactivity, I am trusting that you are at work. In my inactivity, as literally I do nothing but open my hands and sit, I am trusting that you are good, that you are loving, that you are wise. I am trusting that you know my future. I am trusting that you care for me, my family, my job, much more than I ever will. I am trusting that without my participation and involvement, you got this. It is a decision. You could either have faith or you could have control. You can't have both. You could either have faith or you could have control. You can't have both. So what we're doing is we're literally saying, this is why this is so hard. Do you see why this is so hard? Is it literally saying, God, I am trusting you with that. And in my inactivity, I let go. I let go of the striving, trying to manage outcomes. Let me just say this. For some of us, this is an invitation. Some of us, We find ourselves here, not because we wanted to be here, but because we have to. Am I talking to anybody? We've come to this place of saying, God, I can't manage this. Any fixers out there? Come on, anybody? Fixers, solvers, managers, of course. But what happens when you finally encounter something that you can't solve, fix, or manage? What happens? I'll tell you what happens. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Did you know that the word be still in Hebrew literally means let go of your grip? So here's what we're going to do. Cece, thank you. We've been doing this at the end of the service today. We do it at the beginning. I'm going to lead us in a brief, brief time of silence. 
And I need you to, even if you don't have this with you, I need you to envision that envelope that you've been carrying, the burdens, the concerns, the thing you can't solve anymore, the things you can't fix anymore, the things you can't manage anymore, that thing. And I need you and I to mentally put that somewhere. But Peter, what if that thing falls apart? If it's not of God, it needs to fall apart. Can I get an amen? If it's not of God, you do not want any part of that. Trust me. You and I are doing all kinds of things right now trying to manage and solve, and God says, that's not of me, child. And God says, just let it, let it go. Well, what if I fall apart? You will, your false self. That part of you that wants to manage, that needs to die. The part of you that's in bondage to human approval, affirmation, that needs to die. The one that can't be alone because you're addicted to people, that needs to die so that God could resurrect you. The real you, the true you. So I need you to sit still with me and some of the practical things, it's outlined in the back of your bulletin. you can go home. Identifying time and place is a critical thing, which we've talked about, but get comfortable. The next thing you wanna do, and I'm gonna lead you, is a simple prayer that reflects your desire for God. It could be something like some of you, like I surrender. It could be something as simple as, God, I'm here. It could be something like, Lord, have mercy on me. It could be something as, I can't breathe out, breathe in his spirit, but you can. A simple prayer. And remember, this time is solitude and silence is simply being with God with whatever is true about you right now. Whatever is true about you right now. We don't come to this to get something out of it, to hear from God, no. Best of relationships, you're simply together. No words need to be exchanged. This time, you're not in control. God is. So don't try and control this time. Whatever it, this time is like, trust that it's God intended. And after a couple minutes, I'm gonna close us in Lord's Prayer. So what I need you to do is get comfortable. Have your hands free so you're not clutching anything. What I'm doing now, imagine doing this when you're alone. Here I am. I surrender. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I can't. But you can. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us out into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Anybody want to share how that felt? It's hard to sit still. Refreshing. If you weren't here for the last couple Sundays and uh, you uh, would like these, um, at the end of the service, as you head out, the ushers will be at the back. And please pick these up. It's a very practical, tangible thing that I carry just as a physical reminder of what I'm doing when I enter into solitude and silence. Here's a quote that stopped me dead on my tracks where we're going today. It's by Wayne Muller, who's written some wonderful books on Sabbath. I'd encourage you to read his stuff if you can. Because we do not rest, we lose our way. Poisoned. <sighs> Poisoned by the hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort. We could never truly rest. And for want of rest, our souls are in danger. Do you realize how prophetic this is? What a prophetic stance this is in our world today? Do you realize that when we're actually trying to enter into this, that we are essentially going against the grain of a culture that is addicted to noise, people, and productivity? I mean, we are literally, with our lives, rebelling against the status quo. A prophetic stance that says, I will not be conformed to the pattern of this world. I will not let the world's addiction to noise, people, and productivity and achievement and doing identify and give me sense of worth and tell me who I am. It's a prophetic stance. And what we've been saying is this is not a thing on top of other things that we're doing. We're saying what we're talking about here, literally arranging our lives around these sacred rhythms, is fundamentally leaning into how God wired us, folks. And these aren't, I do, you know, these aren't, I serve on the worship team, I serve in a ministry, I give and I read my Bible, and then on top of that, you know, I add on solitude, silence, silence. No, we're talking about God going, when I created you, when I thought of you, when I designed you, for you to flourish with me and with others, this is to be a vital part of your life. You know, it's funny, when we read the Gospels, we always pay attention to what Jesus said. Why don't we pay attention to how he lived? The funny thing is when you read the Gospels and see how Jesus lived, you can't help but notice the number of times the Bible says that he went away to be by himself. 
and he went away to be by himself, and he went away. The number of times Jesus tangibly shows us, you want to live life in a way that flourishes? Solitude, silence, stillness, and Sabbath. Today, I realize that it's not going to speak to everybody. It's going to speak to some of you. Like this sermon series, it's going to speak to you at various points. And today, the title is called Dangerously Tired. <laughs> I don't know what the shifting in the seat and uh, that means. I see you, though. And as I've been saying throughout this sermon series, you need to be rigorously honest with what parts of this speak directly to you. Dangerously tired. Our, 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 uh, our, our text has been centered on 1 Kings chapter 17, and then as we'll see, 19 today. The text to which we're grounding ourselves is the story of Elijah. Elijah, to me, has spoken more powerfully and loudly than anybody in the last few years. I'm not just living, uh, reading his story, I'm living his, his story. Elijah, if you remember, appears with Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're talking about one of the heroes on Mount Rushmore of Israel's history. And yet James 5 says what? He was a human being just like you, just like me. And we're gonna see just how human he was actually today, yeah. The year is around 800 BC. Ahab is the king of Israel. His queen Jezebel have instituted state-sponsored worship of Baal, the fertility god of Tyre and Sidon. They are instituting worship of Baal and killing off God's prophets. And Elijah is top of the list in terms of their hit list. Elijah sent by God to confront them of their rebellion and sin. Elijah says, because of your sin and rebellion, judgment in the form of a drought, a famine will come on the nation of Israel, and it will not rain for three years. And a devastating famine hits the nation of Israel, worse than the country had ever seen. Things are in tatters in the country, economically, politically, socially, spiritually. And Elijah is one of the few voices that are willing to challenge Ahab. And we see this pattern where God draws him into the desert in 1 Kings 17. Well, eventually what we come to is this. Ahab says, I want to see you, Elijah. And Elijah, this is my translation. Elijah says, you want a piece of me? Okay, then meet me on Mount Carmel. So what I'm going to do today is just read for you 1 Kings 18, part of, which is this confrontation on Mount Carmel. It would have made an amazing movie, by the way. Then we're going to find ourselves in 1 Kings 19, which is our text for today. So we don't have it on the slides because I need you to use your imagination as I read 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troublemaker? I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have Elijah says, you abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel, verse 21. Elijah said to the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him, by the way. That'll preach today, eh? Hey. Jesus is Lord, follow him. 
fail this, Lord, follow him. Make up your mind. And people said nothing. Just like us. Verse 22, Elijah said to them, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of the Lord your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he's God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. He's trash talking. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull and prepared it, and they call on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he's God. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in deep thought. Or maybe he's busy. Hebrew, maybe he's in the bathroom. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Use your imagination, verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until blood flowed. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. With the stones, verse 32, Elijah then built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sails of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again. Do it again. Verse 35, the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, answer me, Lord. Answer me, Lord. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to you again. Lord, turn the hearts of your people back to you again. I don't know who, Lord, here, but please turn their heart back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. Oh, I got a response. By the way, see, we are, I don't know, most of us come from church backgrounds. When, when, you, when somebody reads something like this, you're supposed to clap, do something. You know, we read the Gospels of Jesus raising someone from the dead. We're like, eh. Like, there should be shouting on Easter Sunday. Listen, look, look, I'm not, look, listen, like, like, we are so, like, is this amazing? Yes. This happened. Yes. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. No kidding. <laughs> That's called the understatement of the year. Lord, he is God. Yeah. 
Verse 4, then Elijah commanded them, and this is hard, listen to this, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and had them all slaughtered there. Then 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. And I had all the prophets and all the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, Elijah, severely, Elijah, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of them. Don't turn to slide yet. To which Elijah said, Bring it on. To which Elijah said, Are you kidding, Jezebel? Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life and when he came to Beersheba and Judah he left his servant there just sit with that for a moment First Kings 18 four verses later By the way, if Elijah had a servant because he was rich, that'd be one thing. Elijah doesn't have a servant because he's rich. Prophets were very, very poor. Elijah has a servant because he's a prophet. In other words, the servant is his one-person staff. In other words, Elijah is saying, Lord, I'm done with the ministry. I'm done. Verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came to a broom bush set under the tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. I've heard preachers preach on this, and they skip right over this, but I'm not going to do that, because you know your pastor. Elijah is suicidally depressed. I'll get to that in a second more. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Do you know that when I was studying for this, I actually read Old Testament commentators who said the following. There's no way that a man of God this successful, this powerful, Four verses later, could be suicidally depressed. There's something going on. To which I say, they have no idea about human condition or Christianity. Don't let anybody tell you that someone who loves Jesus will never be in despair, never get disillusioned, or struggle with depression. Don't let... Don't let anybody, some of you heard these lies growing up in church, don't let anybody tell you that if you're spiritually right, that you'll never struggle with these things. I could think of at least two other people in the Bible who struggled with suicidal depression. One was Moses in Numbers 11, where he said, God, take my life. And the second was Jonah in Jonah 4, where Jonah says, take my life. I don't think Moses and Jonah were baby Christians, do you? (laughs) The Bible goes out of its way 
to say that God delights in using deeply flawed, broken, even suicidally depressed people for his glory. Can I get an amen? God loves using the weak to shame the strong. God loves using the foolish to shame the wise. God doesn't say, I want to use you despite your weaknesses and flaws. I want to use you because of them. There's this paralyzing mistake that we make. Give me like a minute on this. There's a paralyzing mistake we make thinking that our problems somehow disqualify from us being used by God. Can I say this? If you don't have any problems, then you don't have any potential. Do you know why? Because your ability to help others heal is often limited by where you've been wounded. Let me say that once more. Your ability to help others heal would oftentimes be limited by where you've been wounded. Do you know the woman named Kathy Leitner? Do you know who Kathy Leitner is? She's the mother who founded one of the largest activist organizations in the world. It's called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Do you know why? Because she lost her daughter, Carrie, to a drunk driver. Do you know who the best ministers to women who've had miscarriages in our church are? Not this guy. Other women who've had miscarriages. Do you know who the best ministers to people who lost loved ones through cancer are in this church? Not this guy. People who've lost loved ones through cancer. Do you know who best ministered people who've gone through painful divorce? People who've gone through what? Painful divorce. Your wounds is what God might use to heal others. Can I just say this also? When Jesus appears to his disciples, what's the first thing he does? He shows them his wounds. If Jesus is so willing to show his wounds, why are we so afraid of our Your wounds might be the very thing God uses to heal others. We do need to talk about Elijah's depression. Give me a few minutes. You know, we've come a long way in our culture in talking about depression. But the church, as always, is so far behind. I'm a pastor, not a trained therapist, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. I don't need therapists to come up to me and go, you know, that wasn't quite right. Please give me some grace. How many of you struggle with or know someone who struggled with mental illness, depression? Raise your hands high. <laughs> it's almost everybody. It's almost everybody in this room. Do you know why? One in five adults in the United States struggle with some sort of mental health issues. One in five. That's almost 50 million U.S. adults. That means that in this room, close to 50, 60 of you currently are struggling with or have struggled with mental health issues. From what I know as a pastor, again, this is where and grace, I've seen that depression is a combination of factors. There's biological, chemical, hormonal, neurological. There's genetic, family history. There's environmental, death, loss, divorce. There's also spiritual, though, okay? There's spiritual, there's spiritual factors there's demonic spiritual factors. And then there is what I preached about for the six, seven weeks when I first got back, living a false self. Do you know that when you live a pretend life, when you live a life that's not yours, when you try to be pretend someone, when you're living unfaithful to who you are, that that also causes. It's a number of these combination of factors. You know, when I told you guys that I am living this story, not reading this story, you might not be aware that I have struggled with depression.
Um, it's been a journey. Of realizing and naming and accepting. Jenny and I had a talk this week. Um, it's really good about, um, as you know, I've been therapy for two, three years, and what it might mean for me to take the next step um, in, in dealing with this. I, I don't want this to freak some of you out. So can I say a couple of things real clear? Uh, one, I need you to be appropriately concerned for me, okay? Here's what I mean by that. I don't have any servants to leave in Beersheba and Judah, okay? In other words, I don't plan on leaving the ministry, okay? Please laugh. God has not told me I'm done with ministry. And until he says so, I'm going to be your pastor until you no longer want me to be your pastor. At that point, you know, it's pretty much simple. But I have no intentions uh, of leaving the ministry. But I need you to know that your pastor struggles with depression, and I probably will for a while. Um, what's that? It's forever. My personality is I want to crush depression. <laughs> I want to crush it. I, I want to I wanna just, <laughs> thank you for laughing at that because that's my personality. Like I want to deal with it, be done with it and move on. But here's what I sense from the Lord. I sense God going, my grace is sufficient for you. and my weakness will allow God to make his strength perfect. When Jenny and I talked about, she said, Peter Hong, do not make this about yourself on, on Sunday. And so here's, I need to stop. Here's why I'm saying this, okay, because this is not about me. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is this. My journey towards this self-discovery, this self-discovery, came when I was able to name and recognize that I was dangerously tired. And, please get this, I would have never recognized and named that I was dangerously tired had I not slowed down. Had I not paid attention to my body, my emotions, and my mental health, and take time to be alone and quiet until the external and internal noise began to die down. I ran and ran and ran for so many years that it took slowing down, silence and solitude to recognize that I was not just exhausted, depleted, but dangerously tired. Is anybody dangerously tired? There's a sister up in the balcony who was like, there's the good tired, please give me two minutes on this. There's a good tired, which is 
work done out of the best of who you are, a job well done, and because you're living in healthy rhythms of rest and work, rest and work, this good tired is temporary, and with some rest, you're able to get recuperation, get back on your feet. Dangerous tired, you feel out of control. Dangerous tired actually looks, looks like you're very busy. There's this compulsive need to overwork. You can't stop checking your emails late into the night. There's no balance between work and home. All the boundaries have been obliterated. Some of us, it leads into compulsiveness in terms of you're checking your social media. You can't put it down. You're just mindlessly just on it all the time. For some of us, this compulsion leads to our schedules are packed Monday through Sunday because you can't stand the thought of being alone. By the way, is there anything worse than being in a crowd and feeling lonely? And when you're dangerously tired, you don't feel anything. Remember what I always tell you, you can't just numb the dark, you numb the light. So when you numb sadness and depression, you also numb joy and gratitude. You numb emotions, period, which then of course leads to, for many of us, escapist behavior, because you're just too tired to engage in activities that are life-giving. So you watch porn, you gamble, you overeat, overdrink excessively overwork. Do you see how so much of your busyness and frenetic activity is maybe to hide the fact that you're dangerously tired? Do you know that you could literally be too tired and too worn out to seek God? For some of you in here, the reason why you're not hearing God or close to God is not because of some gross sin. You're just too tired and too exhausted to seek God. That's Elijah. He is too depleted spiritually, physically, emotionally, every way to seek God. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to just get some rest. Can I get an amen? Just rest so that you could be alert to hear God when he speaks. I love this psalm, Psalm 127-2, God gives rest to those he loves. Because look at what he does to Elijah. Verse 5, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate. When God begins to deal with this exhausted, depleted, depressed prophet, what does he do? All the angel does is cook. Oh, you all know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, it's, it's angel food cake. Okay, so I said it. Okay. You know what's coming? Does Elijah get a sermon? Does Elijah get a lecture? Because that's who God is to some of you. What does he get? He gets... Love, compassion, he gets a meal and some sleep and some rest. And God, this amazing creator God, actually comes and sits next to him and he just essentially kind of goes, you're tired, Elijah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, get some rest. Is this the God that you know? Because this is the God that I'm falling in love with all over again. 
A God this tender, this loving. God treats this depressed man, understanding all the dimensions in which he lives. By the way, please, can we, be, can we do away with this dangerous assumption in the church that says, if you're depressed, disillusion, despair, it's because of lack of faith. Good God, have mercy on us. Elijah has a physical nature, and God says, I'm going to take care of that physical nature. Sometimes what you and I need is good food, good rest, and a walk along the beach. No sermons, no lecture. Elijah is a relational nature, so angel just sits next to him, and essentially sometimes all we need is a hug, a touch, a conversation, nearness. Elijah also, yes, has a spiritual nature, and eventually what we see in the coming weeks is God saying, you need to hear my voice, come into my presence. But God cares for this prophet physically, relationally, spiritually. What if I told you that regardless of how you got to be dangerously tired, God just wants to tenderly and lovingly attend to you. What if I told you that silence and solitude, literally, check this out, silence and solitude, I hope this whets your appetite, was all about giving God space to serve you. Elijah will ultimately be called by God at the end of this chapter for a major mission, but before he gets marching orders, God goes, let me serve you first. To which if some of you are going, God's serving me? No, 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 no. I serve God. God doesn't. You're not paying attention to this story, nor do you understand the essence of the gospel. Because here's what Jesus said in Mark 10. The Son of Man even came not to what? Check this out. Be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. A little ego bursting truth. The kingdom doesn't need you. Can I get an Amen. If you think that you're indispensable and the kingdom needs you, you're going to use your serving of God to earn your way into the kingdom. And Jesus says what? Jesus says, this is what I came to do. Not to be served, but to serve. How? By giving my life as a ransom for many. God says, I don't need you. But listen, don't, don't get, God, I don't need you. But God says, but I want you. <laughs> I don't need you. Peter, but I want you. And I so want you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live the life that you should have lived and die the death you should have died. And when you place your trust in me, you become my son, my daughter. And you don't become my son or my daughter by working for me, but trusting in my work for you. Are you so busy serving Jesus that you're missing Jesus? Those who serve Jesus the best are those who have allowed Jesus to serve them and attend to them. What do we have to give to the world? Isn't the only thing that we really, at the end of the day, have to give to the world the gift of God himself? But I cannot give God if I do not have God because I was too busy not being with God. Silence and solitude, space in which we allow Creator God to attend to us and serve us. Is that beautiful? It's just amazing to me. I'm almost done. Verse 8. So strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached 
Horeb, the mountain of God. You're going, whoa, 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 so what? Do you remember what Horeb is? There's another name for it in the Old Testament. It's called Mount Sinai. The mountain where God said, Moses, you're on holy ground. Take off your slippers. It's the place where God said, Moses, come on up. Here are the Ten Commandments, and I'm entering the covenant relationship. In other words, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai is the mountain that symbolizes what? The presence of God. Elijah, disillusioned, despair, depressed. Does something counterintuitive to you and me. What is that? When you are disillusioned, despair, when you fail God, you failed others, and you're not at a good place, do you run towards God or do you run away from God? Most of us, when we're disillusioned, we failed, we haven't been in church long, here's what we do. We don't run towards God in community. We run what? Away from God in community. What does Elijah do? He runs towards God in community. I can't tell you the number of times I've been a pastor, I've heard people go, when I'm better, I'll be back in church. When I got my stuff together, I'll be back in church. When I deal with these things that I need to deal with and I am presentable, I will come back to church. The Bible says, could it be possible that God is big enough to handle you as you are? So God says to Elijah, come with your disillusioned self. Come with your bitter attitude. Come with your misconceptions of who I am. Come just for the possibility of encountering me. Because that's the standing invitation for you and me today. In a minute, I'm going to ask some of you to stand. I'm going to ask those of you that find yourself identifying with Elijah this morning, disillusioned, despair, and you see tired, maybe even depressed. <laughs> I know some of you are, right now you're going, man, if I was more spiritually mature, I wouldn't be. <laughs> if I would have taken better care. I played that game for years. If I would have, if I could have, if I would have, and I heard God going, stop it. Come as you are. And you say, well, why do I have to stand? Why do you always make a stand for two reasons? The way that I was able to be rigorously honest with myself about where I was was the day that I finally told somebody. You've stopped fooling yourself. I'm being rigorously honest with myself. No, you're not. The day that you could tell somebody and saying, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with is the day that you're honest with yourself. Secondly, do you know what it's like when an army of God's body of Christ comes around you and says, you're not alone. You're not alone. It frankly, tangibly reminds me of who God is. It does. That's why community is so powerful. See, the most amazing thing about this story as I'm living it is that God is big enough to go, come as you are. And here's the thing I've been saying for now six months. It is when I come to God as I am, not as I hope to be, not as I want to be, not as I wish to be. It is when I come as I am that I actually experience his love. Because love is experienced when you come in vulnerability. Fully known. To be fully loved. You only experience God's love when you come as you are. 
in vulnerability and brokenness. It's extremely vulnerable to go, God, I don't have it together right now. I am all over the place. I don't need to hear God go, I don't want you to just bring your presentable parts. Bring your whole self to me. I can handle it. And if you have any doubts about, well, what's God going to do? Elijah. 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 See why this is so important for us? I don't know where I'd be without solitude and silence and stillness. Began the journey for wholeness for me. Anybody else want to join me in standing? Yeah. Anybody else? No, this is the time I told you about. If you are here today, come on, CC, come on up. If you're here today and you find yourself, please, this, if you find yourself dangerously tired, exhausted, despaired, disillusioned, just can't hear God, can't see God, I am so far, stand. Come on, I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand. I'm going to give you an opportunity to stand. Stand from where you are. Come on, stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. This is it? For real? For reals? I'll give you another minute. I'll give you another minute. I'm not going to prolong this time because if you're not ready, that's okay. If you're not ready, that's okay. If you find yourself this morning going, you just told Elijah my story. Elijah, I want you to stand. Come on. Stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. Stand from where you are. Oh, child of God, I don't know who you are. You're glued to that. Please. I've prayed for you all week. Be bold. Be courageous. Don't 